This is a Village Soundcast Network original production. Hi, and welcome to Lends Me Your Ears, the movie podcast that takes a look at new films in theaters and then compares them and ties them to films from days gone by. Things you might have seen and things you might want to check out. My name is Stephen Cook, and I'm an arts writer here in Halifax. Hi, and I'm Karsten Knox, and I'm a film writer. I have a blog called Flaw in the Iris you can find at halifaxbloggers.ca. So today we are going to hop in Quentin Tarantino's time machine and take a diesel fuel trip back to 1969 Hollywood when everything was groovy until it wasn't. So, Stephen, so nice to be back with you in the CKDU studios here uh, in Halifax to record a new episode, episode 85 of Lends Me Your Ears. And today we're looking at the new Tarantino picture. And listeners, regular listeners might realize we actually haven't done a Tarantino episode, but that's not really what we're doing today. We're going to talk about the new movie. But we're also going back to look at era-specific films that may have influenced it, or just movies from the late 60s, made in the late 60s in the Hollywood and in the British cinema, I guess. We're looking at a few of those. Yeah. Um, but yeah, my, I guess my question to you is, why not do a Tarantino episode? I mean, we I, we can certainly talk about our favorite <laughs> films, but we, we sort of sidestepped that. Uh, it seems a little obvious, maybe. maybe. Unless, unless we spent a whole hour just talking about his segment in the Four Rooms compilation movie. <laughs> <laughs> that would be particularly annoying niche yeah no i mean we we do have a tendency to try to focus on films that are maybe less no well known than the obvious ones and i because I, I figure well i mean i personally i'll just say that i like the idea that people might not know about the movies that we're going to talk about and i certainly are uh, have seen a lot of the big movies from 1969 say but i haven't seen some of the other ones so it gives me an opportunity to catch up on those and talk about them uh and thankfully you have many of them <laughs> in your yeah, life i was actually kind of surprised at how many we had Once Upon a Time in Stephen's DVD Closet. <laughs> but uh, we did, in fact, go and see. We didn't see it at the same time. You went on Friday. I went on Saturday to see Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Uh, this is Quentin Tarantino's ninth feature film. It's another long running. This is two hours and 41 minutes of Quentin doing what Quentin does, which are long, meandering. This time, I guess it's a comedy. It's a comedy drama, but mostly it's a comedy uh, set in 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 Hollywood in 1969. Rick Dalton, played by Leonardo DiCaprio, is a TV actor who's you know been found fame through sort of cowboy shows like something called Bounty Law and a. Uh, uh, a war picture called The Fourteen Fists of McCluskey. Uh, <laughs> yes. And uh, he is, but he's kind of at the tail end of his career. He's starting to get cast as the bad guy in, in the heavy and other TV shows. And uh, his good buddy and employee, stunt double Cliff, played by Brad Pitt, is a big supporter of Rick's. He's a lot less anxious than Rick is, and he's a lot just more relaxed. And the two of them are just going on in their, uh, you know, in their days. And it's, they just, it's kind of, I would say the first half or the first three quarters of the film are just kind of a hangout. Like, let's see what Hollywood in nineteen in February 1969 was like. Uh, it turns out that Rick, who is very much a fictional character, lives right next to Roman Polanski and Sharon Tate, who are very much not fictional characters. No, not at all. Um, and it, it just, this all, this sort of structure allows for 
Tarantino to sort of indulge in his passion for the era, for the movies of the era. Um, he very cleverly inserts Rick into films and sort of fantasy sequences that he never starred in, obviously, <laughs> uh, but he could have. And um, and then actually features real people, uh, well, not the actual actors, but people playing Bruce Lee, people playing um, Steve McQueen, and and then and then including Mama Cass, yeah, 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 and then and then including. <laughs> actors who were actually working in the 60s um, and then gives them small roles in this film. So uh, Bruce Dern shows up, who's had, what a career that guy has yes. had. Oh my um, gosh, yes. Apparently Brenda Vaccaro is in this, though I didn't spot her, but I saw her on the cast list. I, I think it might just be her voice. Okay, yeah, of that, course, that's possible. You know, and then, of course, we see her in, in Midnight Cowboy, a film from 1969. Yeah, so, so there's all these connections. Yeah, we're, another movie, Castle Keep, has uh, Bruce Dern in it that we watched. So, so there are definite connections. You get the sense Tarantino really knows his stuff. Like, this is the stuff he, he was just a kid in 69, but he, he was brought up with a lot of this TV and film, and he's just, you know, he's just letting it all hang out. And, and a lot of that I really enjoyed. A lot of that sort of just hanging and setting the scene without much of a plot to hang on to, just characters that you're, you're, you're chilling with. Uh, I, I, I enjoyed that. There were other things I enjoyed less, but what did you think, Stephen? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I guess there are analogies to be made to, to say, Pulp Fiction, you know, which also had the intersecting stories and the kind of meandering um, plot line and the shifting timeline and and, and Jackie Brown. Uh, you know, if you compare, uh, you know, um, Robert Forrester's character as the, the, the bail bondsman who's seen better days to uh, Rick Dalton, uh, the actor who's seen better days. You know, I feel like there are certain themes re- recurring in, in the film, um, you know, uh, and of course, uh, as usual, uh, Tarantino puts the feet in feature film uh, with his ongoing obsession with with bare feet. Yeah, women fairly uh, bare feet mostly. Yes, yep. yes, well, and that so that pops up a, a few times fairly uh, obviously over mm-hmm. the course of a, so he he's getting to indulge in a lot of his favorite things, uh, and and uh, but but in an era that is completely fascinating and completely drenched in atmosphere and details and you know and. I need to see it again because I was I was like trying do I focus on the movie or do I look at the details in the background do I look at those album covers you know like am I how many people notice that Cliff Booth has a Pat Suzuki album that I happen to have uh, <laughs> which seems like an odd choice for a stuntman to be listening to but um, you know that all these kind of weird details the movie marquees as they drive around Hollywood and so on it's um, you know it's painstakingly done but at least we have some interesting characters in front of all that uh, set dressing to, to make it worthwhile. I, to me, it didn't feel like a two-hour and 41 movie at all. Like, I, I, I you know, as, as it nears its climax, which is, is pretty obvious, you know, what it's going to be, or, you know, as you watch it, you realize where things are headed, not necessarily how it's going to turn out, but but uh, how things are going to wind up. Um, you know, I was amazed at, at how quickly things moved along, even though it is, as you say, quite rambly, kind of, uh, you know, laid back in its uh, initial third, I guess. Um, and yet uh, it all builds up to something pretty, pretty intense uh, eventually. And I, I should, I guess we should say that, I guess we're going to try not to be spoilery, but there might be some mile. Like if you're really concerned about details, like I don't want to know that he's got a Pat Suzuki record. You might want to wait until you see the film, but <laughs> yeah. you know, we're going to try and not give away, you know, what happens in in the climax yeah. and that kind of stuff? Yeah, absolutely. I would say that that if you've seen uh, the same Glorious Bastards, uh, Tarantino's film from two thousand and nine, you know that he doesn't 
care what the historical record is, and he is willing to change things to suit himself. Um, and that's something that's worth knowing, but that may or may not have an impact on this story. Um, I, I, one of the things you said, Stephen, I do disagree with mildly. I've seen his last, I've seen all of Tarantino's films. His last two were quite long, Django Unchained um, and The Hateful Eight. And those were movies that I felt very engaged by, and actually, there was those were long movies as well. But this was the first one where I felt like, okay, there are a few scenes here that really <laughs> feel like they might have ended up on the cutting room floor with a more judicious editor. And I'm I'm talking about a a scene where where our hero uh, he Rick uh, has a chat with a child actor on the the stoop of a uh, of a set of a western set and i was just like what what's even going on here it does inform some of what's going on in, in Rick's heart and yeah, head it, it does pay off later though so yeah. uh, you know and it wouldn't the payoff later wouldn't work if we hadn't had that scene yeah. so I mean, I felt Hateful Eight probably could have been shorter, so... Yeah, see, that um, was one I was okay with at the time, anyway. I think just being stuck in that room for so long. Yeah. Um, You know, and then there is, like, a long sequence where we sort of live in the the scene of a Western, you know, and it it doesn't feel anything like Western shows from the, the... the 50s or 60s, but we are to assume that this is the... And, of course, you know, they yeah, never, they never cut. Right. They that's, just sort of wander around as these actors pretend to... You know. Yeah, that was... In, I mean, I mean, it's 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 a scene. They're filming a scene for a TV Western, which were fairly prosaic and shot quickly, you know, get her done and get it on the air kind of thing. And it, But it's shot cinematically. So yeah. It, and and that, is a, that was a bit jarring, but I just kind of had to go with it. Well, I guess he's... Because we did see scenes from Bounty Law, which are very... Typical, right? Uh, typically shot in black and white in square frame, and then we shift to, the, to this other film, and I and I or this other TV show where he's playing a heavy and opposite Timothy Oliphant, who I associate yeah. with Deadwood, and this felt like more something <laughs> exactly. out of Deadwood than any any Western TV show that I might remember. Maybe maybe, maybe that was uh, what was implied. I'm not sure, but uh, you know, I guess maybe at that point in the film, it would have been jarring to go back to the TV format you know, yeah, that, that he'd done earlier in the film. Um, you know, and, and Bounty Law is kind of funny because, I I mean, obviously um, uh, Rick Dalton is loosely based on a lot of different real-life I mean, obviously, things like Steve McQueen and Clint Eastwood both got their start in TV westerns. In fact, uh, Steve McQueen, who shows up as Steve McQueen or an actor playing him, um in a really fun scene of the Playboy Mansion party, but uh, but his or his early success was a, I think Wanted Dead or Alive, which was a bounty hunter right. TV show. So Bounty Law is clearly based on that, and then the fact that he goes off to do spaghetti westerns is obviously inspired by Clint Eastwood, who's on Rawhide, who then you know found fame in uh, A Few Dollars More and and the Sergio Leone westerns. Um, but there's a legion. There were so many Western TV shows in the late '50s and into the '60s, uh, and and so many of some of them lasted a season. Some of them, like Ponderosa and Gunsmoke, you know, lasted over a decade. So it was it was really a big part of of uh, the TV, you know, in the three channel universe as it was back then. It was a really big part of the national consciousness. I guess you couldn't you couldn't turn a channel without tripping over a Western show. Mm-hmm. So um, you know, and I guess that. That that's meant to imply how Rick Dalton had penetrated the American consciousness to such a degree because the show was a hit until the last season. They don't actually say what happened. Right. They say something went weird in the in the last season. Yeah. And, uh, and it know, got shut down. And it got shut down. But when we, you know, Rick is kind of a mess when we meet him. I mean, he's he's uh, when he's not playing a character, he tends to stutter. Um, you know, he's uh, you know, he's 
seems to be in the middle of some sort of breakdown, it seems. Yeah, he drinks too much. He smokes a lot. I, I thought that Tarant- or that uh, DiCaprio did a pretty great job with this part. I'm, I'm not a, a super fan of him. I have respect for some of the decisions he's made with his career. He certainly chooses great projects to to uh, work with, and uh, he's he's quite good in this, and as he has been in many things. But I I, I really thought that he delivered that anxiety, that uh, the fear of like losing everything that he had worked so hard for. Uh, I think he and Pitt, who I wouldn't have necessarily paired, I wouldn't have thought that they would make a great sort of double act, but uh, they're really good in this. And, and Pitt delivers that kind of effortless cool that he's so good at. As a, It's a nice counterpoint to DiCaprio's anxiety and, like, you know, jittery sweatiness. Um, yeah, I really... And, and Tarantino, of course, you know, he can get all the most interesting actors however he wants to put them in his film. And I, I really loved not only seeing the veterans in various roles, but... Uh, you know, really strange casting. Nicholas Hammond yes, is in this. That is one of my favorite things in the whole movie. <laughs> Nicholas Hammond, who's a name that, if I say that name, it may not immediately uh, come to mind who he is or what he's done. But uh, I don't know if this somehow ties this movie into the Marvel Universe or not, but he was the first live-action Spider-Man. That's so, right, yeah. Um, actually, well, maybe not. I, there was Spidey Super Stories on Electric Company. I don't know if that came before or after Nicholas Hammond, but but he was the first live-action Peter Parker slash Spider-Man. And, um, and, and then, you know, had a couple of seasons of that on TV and then seemed to vanish into the yeah. mists of time. And here he is... Playing you know, Sam Wanamaker. Who was a real person. Who was yeah. a real... He was um, a theatrical director who got into TV, made a few feature films. Sinbad in the Eye of the Tiger is probably his best known or... Anyway, his biggest uh, theatrical feature, and his his daughter is uh, actor Zoe Wanamaker, who was a um, I think born in the states but raised in Britain and a really respected British actor. So, you know, it's, it's interesting that they chose Nicholas Hammond. They plucked Nicholas Hammond out of obscurity to play a really great part. He only has a few scenes, but he's just so impassioned when he's trying to get DiCaprio to come through in this admittedly formula TV Western, yeah. but he really puts his heart and soul into it. And the way he describes this character and stuff is, is pretty, is pretty remarkable. So, um, but yeah, the fact that they, they found the, the, the original TV Spider-Man to, to play this director, I thought was a really, you know, interesting choice, especially when I remember seeing him in the trailer and I was trying to figure out, okay, I know some of the names in this film, who is that playing, right. playing this guy? Cause I didn't even know what the character's name was at that point. And, uh, and then Luke Perry, yeah, in his Luke final Perry. role, shows up as a, as another Western TV actor and is mm-hmm. great. Yeah, you know, I almost didn't recognize him. It's been a while since I'd seen Luke Perry on screen. Well, I clearly guess, you but, don't watch Riverdale. But I don't. So. But that's you're right. <laughs> um, but I, you know, this is the thing that Tarantino is known for. He he resurrected the career of John Travolta once upon a time. Man, does that guy need another resurrection? Okay. Um, uh, but you know, he's got Michael Madsen in there. Lena Dunham has a small role here. Uh, Dakota Fanning, uh, the ever charming Kurt. Russell shows up and just sort of grins through the movie, through his yes. his scenes. Uh, scenes. You know, this Zoe is, Bell, of course, this stunt person who yeah. uh, was was so great in, in Death Proof and and some other things that mm-hmm. uh, Tarantino's latched onto. Um, and and a, an actor named Mike Moe, who uh, I hope I'm pronouncing his name right, who plays 
a very convincing, if somewhat unflattering, Bruce Lee uh, in the film. Uh, And that's a great scene, too, though. I wonder how Bruce Lee fans feel about that or or maybe his estate. I guess they must have okayed it, but but I wonder about it. Yeah, not necessarily. (laughs) Yeah, there's there's some questions about that and about the way Tarantino crosses over into reality and and the way he uses actual people in his films that make me kind of scratch my head, like how he gets away with this stuff. But... uh, you know, all that is all that world building. I really enjoyed. I'd say that the part of the film that maybe bothered me the most is something that I haven't always recognized. I haven't always seen in Tarantino films, but there is an issue wherein I feel like the the women don't come off very well in his movie in this in this particular. Issue. I mean, this is the guy who gave us Pam Greer as Jackie Brown and and the Bride and Kill Bill, so he he knows how to how to write. Uh, prominent and eight women with agency, but that's just well, to not be fair. Elmore Leonard gave us Jackie Brown. Well, fair so. enough. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> um, but but it's uh, you know I just felt like Margot Robbie as Sharon Tate basically, uh, for want of a better word, haunts the movie rather than really being a character that we empathize with or have has very much to say she she just wanders around she's light she's happy sure her her life is going well it makes for an interesting counterpoint with given her career is rising just as rick dalton's career is going down but that's not that's not only it there's there's this really weird gag about uh perry that's uh the brad pitt character not perry uh his name is uh what's his name cliff 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 he cliff's um wife and whether or not he killed his wife and that's like left there as kind of a gag kind of a joke uh but we never find out really what happened there and it just feels it feels really distasteful in some ways i just i couldn't quite shake off this feeling of this like broy like you know everything was great for guys but women got their heads bashed in in the, back in the 60s you know like i just i i uh yeah that stuff kind of made my skin crawl a little bit yeah, the, I mean, well, welcome to the late '60s, I guess. The the yeah, the, the bit with uh, with Cliff's wife is is a, a bit of black humor that probably didn't need to be underlined. So well, so directly, I, maybe he didn't think it was underlining, but I just feel like this is Tarantino's fantasy uh, of what the '60s were. You know, just because it was sexist then doesn't mean that he has to make it. It's like no. a fantasy of sexism. You but know? Uh, you know, I mean, the one thing about that is that, of course, everyone suspects him. You know, because it was the way. I'm not, I don't even want to say too much about it, but but uh, it makes Cliff look kind of sketchy, like in in a lot of people's eyes. And, yeah, and. I think that's necessary because he is very likable and easygoing and he's got that swagger and, and you kind of admire him. But there's another side to him that uh, is a bit darker and it does come out in moments like that. So, mm. you, you know, you, you, it helps you realize that he's not a 100% great guy. Yeah, and I mean, that's fine. But I'm just wondering, there's, there's one thing for a character to behave that way and being a, a proper part of the story. But then there's, you just look around for, for female characters that you can that connect with that actually have some kind of uh, root in the film, and there aren't really any. No, well, that's an ongoing <laughs> problem with Tarantino's filmography, I guess. I mean, uh, you know, a lot of people had issues with uh, the way Jennifer Jason Lee's character gets treated in Hateful Eight. Right, yeah, that's true, that's true. And, uh, you know, Django Unchained certainly isn't rife with yeah. strong female it's characters It's been a while, either. it's been a while since, since, uh, since Pam Greer's... Uh, uh, Jackie Brown or or the the bride, um, you know, and and then of course uh, Tarantino does come with admissions that he knew more about Weinstein than anyway. All of those things, it's hard not to have that impact your appreciation of this 
this film in some ways. Oh, well, there's this been things that leave a bad taste in your mouth about the guy since, you know, almost since day one. So it, it's, you know, part of the reason that he makes these volatile <laughs> films that, uh, that can set people off and, yeah. you know, and, uh, uh uh, you know, I know there's a lot of people that are, you know, when he says his 10th film is going to be his last, I know some people are going to be going, finally, mm-hmm. <laughs> it's it's over. So. I, I don't think he'll go away. I don't think this is a guy who wants to stop working. But, yeah, he may wind up doing 10 films. Uh, you know, one thing about the picture also before we, we move on to films from 1969 that I also wanted to say was uh, that I wonder if Rick Dalton is kind of his his proxy. Like, I've never thought of Tarantino as one of those sort of personal filmmakers that makes movies that that are about him personally. But, uh, like, here we got a guy who really admires the artist who lives, you know, next door to him and believes and wants that kind of respectability and and yet is feels like he's on his way down, doesn't quite have the, the cachet that maybe he once did. And, and I wonder if this is somehow Dalton is a stand-in for Tarantino's mm. own fears about his career and where he is in life. I, I mean, I, maybe I'm reading too much into this, but it struck me as I watched it. Yeah, he's never struck me as a guy who has fears about his own career. He seems sort of ridiculously overconfident, if, if anything. So I, I, you know, I, I think he was just thinking about all those guys who were like big TV stars and then, you know, wound up, you know, spinning off into obscurity or into Italian westerns and crime dramas, which are awesome. But you know, maybe not the the career move they would have hoped for, but. You know, those uh, having watched my share of spaghetti westerns starring failed American film stars, I, I think he was just fascinated with that character type. You know, the the Cameron Mitchells and the John Saxons of the world. You know, I, I think he's genuinely interested in that kind of level of actor who doesn't go on to become Paul Newman or Steve McQueen or Clint Eastwood. Hi, I'm Lindsay Cameron Wilson, host of the Food Podcast. But you know what? It's not just about food. It's about people and their stories shared through the lens of food. The Food Podcast has been described as an audible fairy tale. How about that? You can find us on iTunes and Stitcher. So come join us. We would love to share our stories with you. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood does immerse us in the Hollywood film world of 1969 and and, and movies definitely play part of the backdrop. We see lots of movie marquees showing things like Krakatoa, east of Java, of course, which, of course, the big joke is that Krakatoa is actually west of Java, apparently. Um, and we see Three in the Attic, uh, which I think had, uh, was it Dean Martin and Yvette Mimieux, a, a thriller from the time. And, and uh, of course, The Wrecking Crew, the Matt Helm film, uh, starring Dean Martin, uh, based on the kind of action pulp novel hero, um, uh, which featured St- Sharon Tate playing his sort of bumbling assistant. And we get to see a hefty chunk of a fight scene between her and Nancy Kwan, who was awesome in that film. However, that film is not very good. Um, I don't think... <laughs> and I, uh, it's by a director named Phil Carlson, who went on to make Walking Tall, of all things, but who was like, you know, uh, sort of established himself with Westerns and, and film noir in the 50s and early 60s. Uh, and... Uh, I've watched all those Matt Helm films and I've heard they were fairly weak in terms of, and I think we'd maybe talked about them a little bit on our, one of our secret agents. Spy agent, spoofs. Our spy spoofs thing. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, you can see Dean Martin's level of interest in this character shrink with each installment. He just kind of walks through them and with no, no real uh, level of commitment uh, apparent on the screen. And, and this is no exception, but it does have fun cast members 
like like Quan and and Tate and so on and uh you know it it's if you want to feel of the 60s and and how maybe it wasn't so groovy you might want to check out that film because it's it's definitely a piece of product that uh has not uh has has passed its uh, shelf life for sure but obviously it was out at the time and and uh you know Tate being a character in the film and interested in her own career and where it was headed um it it certainly is crucial to the movie but not crucial for for you to watch, but we thought we would actually pick some good films from from the late '60s, from 1969. They, they weren't all good. They, that's true. They weren't all good. Um, <laughs> you, you, know. you you served up a bunch. Thankfully, there were a few that, that there were a few um, that I had I had some issue with. But yeah. Um, well, let's start with a good one. Okay. And and we can touch on some of the not so great ones. Um, but it you know it was an interesting time for movies. The the uh, the production code had been lifted in the last year, a couple of years. Um, leading up to this, so all of a sudden there was a new um, permissiveness in films. Uh, you start to see nudity, uh, sexuality discussed in honest and sometimes exploitative ways. Um, you know, certainly there was an exploitation film market. I mean, I, we're not even going to get into Russ Meyer and, and that whole thing, but uh, you know, things were changing mostly for the better, not always, but. Uh, there was the, there was uh, the collapse of the studio system. Of course, the major studios that had run Hollywood up until now were were starting to crumble, or were well 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 in the early stages of decay by making big budget productions that were flopping left, right, and center. Things like Paint Your Wagon with Clint Eastwood, who we mentioned earlier, uh, which was a huge uh, flop for Paramount um, that year. That came out in '69 and is not one of Clint Eastwood's finer moments, and and not one of the movie musicals' finer moments. Although, you know, if you want to hear Lee Marvin sing anything, I guess that's where you that's where you want to go. But but at the same time that the studios were kind of imploding with with things like Paint Your Wagon and Doctor Doolittle and these and Hello Dolly and these big expensive productions that went over like a lead balloon with with audiences, um, you know, there was also something released by Paramount called Medium Cool. Uh, directed by a cameraman, Haskell Wexler, um, great cinematographer, great documentarian, who took that combination of of knowing how to use a camera efficiently and uh, his documentary filmmaking experience to make a drama about a cameraman uh, on the loose in Chicago in 1968, around the time of the Democratic Convention, when uh, all hell broke loose uh, in, in Chicago, both uh, at the convention and in the park across from the hotel where protesters uh, had a had a very violent clash with uh, law enforcement officials and it was, and he was there he was there to capture some of the action he had some of his actors in the middle of it um you know as people were getting their skulls cracked by batons and and uh we have Robert Forster who of course was the bail bondsman in Quentin Tarantino's Jackie Brown and I'm I'm guessing that Tarantino was probably a big fan of this film which yeah, led him to seek surprised. out Forster I mean Forster's in a lot of other films but uh this is uh pretty much the one where he made his mark uh, as a leading man, even if that leading man career wouldn't uh, last very long. But uh, but here he's he's quite appealing as this cameraman who's trying to make sense of his life, um, torn between two women and his job, and, and, and uh, also fully aware that there are darker forces at work uh, in the corridors of power as he's trying to capture uh, reality for the news cameras and uh, is seeing his footage being used to nefarious ends. So there's a lot going on in this film. There's, there's, um, you know, it certainly, it certainly breaks a lot of the taboos of things that would not have been allowed on screen a few short years previously. And uh, it, uh, it feels very prescient now about, uh, you know, about what it says about media and what it says about, uh, you know, 
the, what uh, the authorities are, are using, uh, you know, the, the footage and, and what's what's available out there. You know, it, it gets into maybe a little bit in surveil about surveillance and, and where we are with that now. Uh, it's it's very prescient and 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 still very much a product of its time in terms of its experimentation and, and some of its kind of trippier uh, uh, scenes and, and experiments. So. Uh, I, I really like this film. It's, it's, uh, it's not perfect. You know, it, it tries to have this kind of elliptical ending, which I don't think necessarily works, but, uh, but it's still a pretty powerful film. Yeah, no, I, I'm glad we had a chance to watch it. Uh, Haskell Wexler obviously has a great eye. I really like the way he mixes the fiction with the nonfiction. Like, clearly he shot actual stuff going on uh, documentary style and then works it into it's like he has his performers act in front of these these scenes and things that are really going on um, and that that makes for an exciting you know uh, sort of tension that's going on in the film I liked the political stuff especially I liked uh, when you know the John the Robert Forster character is trying to deal with his job and trying to get talk to people, interview people, and he's he has, there's this really interesting scene that happens where he visits sort of a rundown area of Chicago and speaks to some characters, African-American characters, and they're, they're, you know, basically challenging him on the way they're depicted in the media, and some of that stuff is really great. I was less interested in the love story and the relationship with the kid. Um, that seemed to slow things down a bit for me in a way that I, I just was less interested in that, but, uh, but yeah, I really did like, I really I'm impressed with in some of these movies how clearly the influence of the French New Wave and that cinema verite is something that American filmmakers are really grabbing at. Obviously, you know, one of the big movies of the year was Easy Rider. And, uh, you know, the, the, the limits of the budget sometimes bring on that sort of handheld camera, that kind of guerrilla filmmaking. That's been true throughout the history of film. But uh, you really see it in some of these movies and and some of that stuff is is really cool yeah you really get a feeling that they're trying a whole bunch of new things in this movie and uh and we're going to see that in some of the other um titles that we looked at for better or for worse uh and but but here i i I found it 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 pretty refreshing and we see a few familiar faces uh peter bonners um is the sound guy uh working with robert forrester the cameraman for the tv news channel and, uh, of course, uh, you may remember him as the dentist sharing an office with Bob Newhart on the Bob Newhart show. He was basically a part of a comedic improv troupe, as was Peter Boyle, who shows up for one scene as a, uh, as a guy running a gun range where it seems a lot of housewives are going and learning how to use firearms, uh, which is a, a terrific scene, and, he, and he's great in it. So it, it's, it's fun to see those familiar faces pop up. Um, or, you know, they wouldn't have been very familiar to people at that time, but uh, would, would, soon would be. And... Uh, it just, uh, yeah, I, I think that there's an excitement in this film. The, the stuff with the kid, I, I guess, you know, maybe that's some of Haskell's own sort of personal recollections getting in there. Um, I'm, I'm not sure how much of that was a personal story for him, uh, with the, the kid with the pigeons and the, the the dad who's gone off to war and coming from the from the poor South to the industrial Chicago. Um, uh, I'm guessing maybe that was meant to sort of underline the the haves who are in power and at this political convention and the have-nots who are trying to scrape by and make a living in the city um the i guess it does add some balance it did for me anyway but uh but i think that a lot of this stuff was maybe done on the fly the film mm-hmm. has that that it does have a lot of an a kind of an improvised and um uh seat of the pants kind of feel i guess so 
maybe that's what they had going in script wise. And then when they got this Democratic convention footage, uh, it turned into a very different movie along the way. I, I'm guessing that uh, a, a lot of what happens in this film is a very happy accident. And I guess that maybe that's what it makes it exciting to watch because you don't necessarily know where it's going yeah no fair enough uh and i learned something about haxel west haskell wexler the cinematographer documentarian and filmmaker uh he shot matewan for john sales which is i gather a new version is coming out from yes. criterion uh we speak we talk a lot about criterion a lot these days because they're you know they do such good work um well plus and having the criterion channel makes it a lot easier to see uh some of their titles if you can't afford to shell out for their actual physical copies at least yeah. you can see the, the transfers that they've done and, and uh, see those on TV, um, which, mm. which I guess because, I don't know, we, we haven't really put these in any order, but uh, maybe that should bring us to Midnight Cowboy. Sure. Yeah, that makes sense. It's a movie that was actually a big deal at the time, uh, one I hadn't seen in many years, and you know, I heard mixed things about it. My memory was a bit foggy. I remember the characters really well, but I had very little memory of what the story was. And, you know, as revisiting it, it's, uh, you know, it's Joe Buck, this uh, Texas stud, as he self-described. Um, and uh, he comes to New York City hoping for to become sort of a, a hustler. And uh, that's his plan. And it doesn't really go very well. He he becomes associated with a Razzo Rizzo. And, uh, and it's just about these two guys trying to survive through the the grip of a winter in New York and a, and uh, and basically you know it's it's about the American dream in the gutter uh, people just striving and not succeeding in in the in the big city uh, and it's it's pretty heartrending stuff it does have time to show us other aspects I think they go to that go to a party and see some of that sort of 60s art culture. Oh yeah, Warhol's factory. Yeah, basically, basically. Yeah, but um, you know, and I understand the film was pretty controversial at the time due to its sexual content. It doesn't feel particularly racy now, but but it's uh it's still shot with a lot of vim. Um and uh yeah, Brenda Vaccaro plays a small role in this and she's apparently in some capacity on Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, maybe just her voice, but uh she's in this um uh, yeah, I'm glad I went back to watch Midnight Cowboy. Uh, it, it, it still holds up. There's a lot of it that still holds up. Um, you know, and I, I, uh, yeah, I appreciated that. Yeah. I like this movie more and more every time I see it. And this is probably the fourth or fifth time I've watched Midnight Cowboy over the years. Uh, I mean, John Voight gives an amazing performance, uh, as, as Joe Buck, you know, you kind of wonder like, should he have left his, his hometown in Texas? But, you know, uh, but, you know, then he has this New York experience, this adventure that kind of, opens his eyes and, 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 you know, takes that, uh, you know, farm boy, uh, grin off his face, I guess, or whatever. But, you know, you realize that through the flashbacks, you realize things weren't so rosy at home in Texas either. And, uh, you know, and, and, and Razzo Enrico, uh, Rizzo gets, uh, gets a little bit of redemption in the process. He's, he's, he's not a, a great guy when we meet him, but he somehow, gets this humanity from his friendship with Joe Buck. And I really appreciate that. And it is, it is a bit of a bromance, mm-hmm. you know, and Dustin Hoffman and between and the two of them, he's great in it. I mean, it's really one of his iconic roles, isn't it? Yeah, it really is. I mean, it really put, but between that and the graduate, it's funny, both the graduate and this end up with him on the back of a bus or in the back of a bus. But, um, it's, it's, uh, it's interesting parallels between those two characters and how different they are and how this really established him as, as, 
you know, Hollywood's most unconventional leading man, I suppose, but but one who could uh, do just about anything. The film won Best Picture, I believe, the first X-rated, or maybe the only X-rated film to, to win a Best Picture. Um, in fact, uh, as you say, it doesn't seem so risque now. And uh, years later, when they wanted to have a reissue of it, um, it was going to be, the, they were worried that it was still going to be rated X, even though times had changed and what was X in 1969 wasn't necessarily going to be, you know, four or five years later. And they said, they asked Schlesinger, could you just take out one frame just to say that you cut something out of it and then we can rate it an R? Like, it was going to be rated an R anyway. And he said, no, I'm not going to change a single frame of the film. And they gave it an R rating, but because it was clearly not uh, not nearly as, uh, um, you know, Thought, well, I'm trying to think of the word here, but it wasn't certainly wasn't as boundary pushing a few years later as it was when it came out. Um, and I, I love that Schlesinger stood up for it. Schlesinger was also uh, one of the first openly gay directors working in the movie biz, um, and you can see some of that sensibility coming through throughout the film, and that that is fairly refreshing to see. And I love the Warhol factory scene, mm-hmm. you know, Viva and Ultraviolet. Uh, Paul Morrissey, I think, is in there somewhere. Key figures in the the Warhol scene, and and I'm sure for a lot of people who saw this in the theater, that was their first time being exposed to that whole uh, universe. So there's a, there's a lot going on in this film that uh, can be appreciated even more now, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, and plus it's got some some great music uh, throughout. Of course, the Harry, yeah. um, Harry Nielsen singing the, the theme song, which he did not write, so which some people think, but uh, he wrote a song called I Guess the Lord Must Be in New York City was the song that he proposed. And uh, they decided Everybody's Talking by Fred Neal was a better choice, which it is, although it sounds a lot like the one that Nielsen wrote. All right. If you go back and listen to the one that he wrote for the movie, they sound very similar. But, Mm -hmm. um, you know, and that that song, that rambling, um, sort of yearning song, almost a yodel, too, with the way he does that keening voice. I mean, it really suits the character so incredibly well. Yeah, it's a a great film. And I, I wanted to segue a little bit from from a film like that, which has still a lot to tell us about our own time, 50 years later, to a movie that uh, also was Academy Award winning, but uh, I think has a lot more just to say about the problems of the the time it was made, and that's Cactus Flower, which was a movie <laughs> yes. that you suggested I hadn't seen before. Goldie Hawn is introduced in the film. This is her first role. She won Best Supporting Actress for the film at the Oscars. She's Tony, a 21-year-old who's fallen in love with a dentist played by Walter Matthau. So the first thing you need to swallow is that a 21-year-old knockout would be attracted to an almost 50-year-old Matthau whose uh, Dr. Julian Winston is set up as a ladies' man, irresistible to women. He's so (laughs) irresistible, he lies to Tony and tells her that he's married, even though he isn't, hoping to avoid any kind of commitment. And in the middle of this sort of (laughs) deal is Ingrid Bergman, who is in her mid-50s at the time, pretty much unchanged from her glamorous 40s, so they totally make her frumpy. Uh, But it's hard to hide the the wondrous and the wonder of Ingrid Bergman. Um, This apparently was her first Hollywood film she'd done in ages because most of her career in the intervening 20 years was in Europe. She plays Dr. Julian's secretary, who... He describes as a good wife, devoted, competent, who takes care of everything for him. She's great in the film. The performers are really good, but it's that trope of, like, 
bright, appealing women who tolerate men's terrible behavior, even as they end up looking like fools, you know, and it's it's the sort of thing where mis- <laughs> men lie, women put up with them, they make them feel miserable, but they should probably tolerate that thing because they're, because men are essentially harmless. It's, it's, there's a lot of gender politics here that feel very dated, yeah. uh, and it's, it's not a movie that I, I, I mean, it's a dinosaur, pretty much. Well, this is a good example of how Hollywood was kind of out of touch and kind of imploding. I mean, you know, when Paramount releases Medium Cool and If, Paramount also released If, which we'll probably talk about in our next segment. But, uh, you know, they were kind of co-opting films that were already produced elsewhere or whatever. So, you know, they needed something to prove they were still relevant. And uh, films like this prove why the studios were not (laughs) uh, relevant any longer. Actually, it's funny that... uh, you can get a Blu-ray that pairs Cactus Flower with Michael Powell's Age of Consent, okay. which is a, a wonderful film. James Mason plays a painter uh, who lives in the Great Barrier Reef in Australia, and he um, he comes across this young nymph played by a uh, very young Helen Mirren, who inspires him to great artistic heights, and uh, you know, which is a much more a different portrait of sexual liberation and freedom than what we get in Cactus Flower. Uh, yeah, it, it's it's kind of a sitcom come to life, mm-hmm. and uh, I I mean, it it has not aged as well as as other films that we're talking about. I mean, I kind of enjoy watching it for the stars and their performances. And Goldie Hawn is is a delight to watch. It's you know, I kind of wish she'd been in more films. Like she obviously, you know, the, it seemed like there was a big gap between her early kind of hits like this and Sugarland Express for uh, Steven Spielberg. And then she kind of comes back in Private Benjamin and makes a couple of okay comedies after that. But, um, yeah, she you know, had kids and a family. It, yeah, as well exactly. At the same so, time, so, right? you know, she, she had other life priorities and making movies, but she, she has a great energy. And, uh, you know, again, I wish I was in a better film than Cactus Flower, but it, it is kind of fun to watch just to see, how far we've come, I guess, yeah. in a lot of ways. Yeah, and I should say, as a connection to Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, uh, they go to see her character and Matthau's character go to see Romeo and Juliet, which is <laughs> yes. playing on one of the marquees, uh, one of the cinemas that you drive by on in the Tarantino film. So, you know, it all comes back to that. So another movie I sought out because I'm a fan of Maggie Smith and she won Best Actress Oscar and the BAFTA for The Prime of Miss Jean Brody, uh, which is, it's an astonishing performance. I was so impressed with with this film. Based on the Muriel Spark book uh, and the J. Preston Allen play, directed by Ronald Neem, who also directed Gambit and The Poseidon Adventure and The Odessa File, other pretty big movies of the era. The Prime of Miss Jean Brody is, very much feels sort of like a play it's set in an exclusive girls' school in Edinburgh, in 1932, very conservative school with a domineering headmistress. And Jean Brody, the lead character played by Smith, is her methods are very progressive. She's very interested in inspiring her girls. She's very interested in being her own woman and 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 committed to being a teacher overall, including her own happiness. But she is having these sort of liaisons with some of the other men in the school, which is very scandalous. Um, but really what the problem is here, she's also romanticizing fascists. Her Some of her favorite leaders in the European theater uh, include Mussolini and Franco. And she some of that lessons, some of those lessons go to her students and, and turn out to, you know, to tragic consequences. This is pretty complex stuff because in one side she's super endearing and lovely and 
you know, and, and she is inspiring her students to embrace art and and free thought and, and independence. But at the other, she's also bringing to bear some political stuff, which is really damaging. One of her students um, sort of pieces this together, played uh, Sandy, played by Pamela Fra- Franklin, and uh, it all just kind of falls apart. It's It's a great performance. I think fans of uh, of Downton Abbey certainly should go and seek it out if they have not seen The Prime of Miss Jean Brody. It's great to see young Maggie Smith really hit her stride and, and put this amazing performance on screen. Yeah, she's her career gets off to a roaring start with, with films like this. There's another one called Young Cassidy from a couple of years before where based on the life of uh, Sean O'Casey, I think, in Ireland, and she's terrific in that as well. And uh, I love these early roles of her where she's just very fired up and uh, you know, just kind of leaps off the screen. I don't know. This was a play originally. Uh-huh. I, I think maybe she did the play in the West End. I'm not 100% sure. I'd have to look that up. But I think Vanessa Redgrave might have been. Okay, well, play. that would make sense. Yeah. Um, I've seen it performed on stage, and, and uh, uh, but nothing really holds a candle to, to Maggie Smith in this role. She owns it and deserved that Oscar, definitely. But it is a heartbreaking um, performance, you know, as you see her kind of sow the seeds of her own undoing over the course of the film, uh, and it's, uh, you know, and I love those, uh, I think it's set in Edinburgh. Um, yeah, you know, those yeah, lo- yeah. The, in the, 32. The, the feel of those locations and of, of that world um, that it creates. And, it, you know, the, the and it's it sort of relates directly to the time that it was made as well as the time that it's set in, that that, that quest for, for some sort of spiritual and sexual liberation, but, you know, with, in a dodgy political time. So I, I think it, it probably had some extra resonance then. Now we appreciate it for the performances, but it, it, uh, I think some of the themes are, are still fairly, uh, fairly potent, uh, all these years later. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We also watched another film set in a, in a school. This yes. is a boys school. This is Lindsay Anderson's if, which, uh, which is set in the current day of the late 60s and uh, stars Malcolm McDowell, very young Malcolm McDowell as Mick, uh, Richard Warwick as Wallace, and David Wood as Johnny. There's sort of three nonconformist lads who are tortured by the upperclassmen, the older boys. And uh, and then things get a little strange towards the end. It's, it's <laughs> yes. uh, the, the, the boys, I mean, in some ways it's, a, it's your typical, you know, uh, privileged, sort of slightly insufferable, sex-obsessed young men uh, with not... There's a few homoerotic moments as well. Uh, and I think this... I mean, as I understand it, it's it's really about how school is a training ground to encourage boys to combat and to war. And that's where the story tends to go without giving too much away. I felt like it was satiric. The whole thing was kind of a comment on British school system and British society and this, this way, sort of a uh, toxic masculinity, if you will, um, and I, I really, and, and then the ending is something we'd never see <laughs> yes. in a movie today, no. but, but it, I think it does have, you know, obvious, I think Anderson was commenting on what he saw in his own experience in schools, apparently shot on location yeah, at, at his, school. At his original private school. Yeah. Which of course in, in Britain is called a public, public school, school, which yes. is very confusing. But, um, yeah, I mean, I, I liked, I liked the thematic issues. I found myself struggling to like any of the characters uh, <laughs> yeah, as well. I felt like That's... Malcolm McDowell's, um, you know, Droog was more likable than, than his, his, uh, his Mick, but that's, you know, it's, I, I think I, I appreciated what the filmmaker was trying to do. And it weirdly goes from color to black and white and back again, uh, kind of randomly, which is an interesting aesthetic choice. Yeah. There's, there's a lot, uh, and, and we don't have many, much much time left in the show, but there's a lot going on in this film. The the uh, it, it is pitch black satire, and uh, as with most of those kinds of films, 
it's it's rare to find a likable character. I mean, I suppose Doctor Strange Love is is kind of in a, in a similar vein. Uh, and of course, there were two sequels: uh, Oh Lucky Man and uh, Britannia Hospital, with uh, Malcolm McDowell returning to play Mick in those films. Although Anderson later said, even though it was, it's the same actor and the same character name, it's actually different characters in each film. They're not really tied thematically. They don't oh, that's follow not, each other chronologically. That's not confusing. No, not at all. <laughs> but but that's. I think Anderson just likes to keep people on his toes, as he does here. The switch from black and white to color, for years people thought, or it was you know, said that it was because they ran out of money for color footage and had to switch to black and white. As it turns out, there was he filmed a couple of scenes in color inside the cathedral, didn't like the way they looked because of the, the high grain of the film and the low lighting. And he switched to black and white, and he loved how it looked. So then he just thought, well, we'll film those scenes in black and white, and then just randomly use black and white just to throw people off. Because it does switch from fantasy to reality without much of a, a signal uh, when, you know, I mean, you can tell when some things are fantasy and some, when some things are reality through the eyes of, of Mick uh, over the course of the film, uh, including the slam-bang finale. Um, but uh, but the film kind of blurs those lines um, fairly cleverly, I thought. And... Uh, you know, and, and it turns into this kind of revenge fantasy that uh, that was pretty potent stuff at the time. And, the, the, you know, the British Board of Censors had a lot of problems with this I film bet. on many different levels. But, you know, because times are changing and because people were championing the rights of filmmakers to do what they wanted, that uh, these these films came out and kind of opened the door for for more of this kind of expression. And it, it, it's, it's, it's a lot more exciting, I think, at this time than it would be maybe down the road when you know, oh, we have to have a nude scene to get an R rating kind of thing. Like, it, it seems like, um, you know, an opportunity was kind of lost there for mainstream films to be, you know, really progressive and adult. And then, of course, you get into the whole NC-17 thing, um, you know, a couple of decades later. Uh, and also another British film from this time period that also uh, messed with the censors' minds was Women in Love. Uh, Ken Russell. Ken, Ken Russell's adaptation of the D.H. Lawrence uh, classic. And uh, I really love this film. It's... Um, it's very much a Ken Russell film, just in the way he shoots faces, the the, the bright colors that are employed throughout the film. Um, you know, it's a it's a almost casual approach to sex and nudity, uh, and uh, and his his love of D. H. Lawrence, which continues throughout his career with other films and other projects. Um, and basically, we have a pair of sisters who uh, are are not married or engaged, and they become fixated on two men played by. Um, Alan Bates and <laughs> Oliver Reed. Reed. Yeah, yeah. Yes, sorry. <laughs> of course, you know, like you can't talk about Ken Russell without talking about Oliver Reed, of course. Um, and this is, you know, this is early for Russell. I mean, he's already known as kind of an enfant terrible from some of his television work and his uh, biographical films on composers. Uh, uh, but this sort of paves the way for the films that would come, like The Devils and Tommy and uh, The Boyfriend, Listomania. You know, this, his his love of in some cases, visual excess. Although in this in this film, he hasn't quite gotten there yet. I, I find that it's visually lush and and lovely, um, and uh, and some really powerful emotions presented on screen. And and the characters do not get larger than life necessarily than the way they would in his later films. So, you know, it's even if you're not a fan of Kurt Ken Russell's later work, uh, when he tends to be a little more over the top here, um, he employs that. Um, that drive, that cinematic drive that he has to examining pa the nature of passion and uh, the nature of love and the relationships between men and women and men and men, um, you know, around the time of just after the the end of the First World War. And uh, 
it's potent stuff and and uh, really quite visually lovely. And and of course, Oliver Reed has never been better. It was of course famous for uh, a scene where Bates and Reed. Uh, decide to prove their manhood by wrestling nude in front of a fireplace, and uh, and that was that was uh, certainly caused a sensation when the film came out. It's uh, but it's it's a you know you watch it now and you don't even really think about it. It's just a it's very funny. It's very human. Um, you know they're definitely game for doing this scene, and uh, it's it's a classic uh, in cinema. Even if you can't show it on network television, <laughs> um, it's 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 an amazing scene, and you can watching it you kind of feel the barriers kind of crumbling. All right. Well, I that's still on my list to see. One film I did see and I want to recommend here on Lens Me Your Ears before we conclude our look at films from 1969 is Michael Ritchie's Downhill Racer. Uh, Ritchie directed the 1970s thriller Prime Cut. He worked with Robert Redford in The Candidate and made a couple of sports movies in the 70s, Brad News Bears and Semi-Tough. Uh, later in the 80s, he went into comedies like Fletch and The Golden Child. But Downhill Racer is a sports movie, but maybe the only one I can think of around skiing. And it's got that verite style again that was so popular, and it was amazing. I mean, the ski sequences are really exciting. Robert Redford, very young, a cocky, ambitious skier from Idaho Springs, Colorado. He's got a, pro- a lot to prove, and he's particularly uninterested in any sense of solidarity with his fellow skiers in the American team. Uh, and Gene Hackman plays his coach, and uh, they're great in it, of course. But it, it's a great film that subverts some of the cliches of sports movies. It's thrilling, and it it's, offers a protagonist who isn't terribly likable. So, you know, when he is getting close to winning, you wonder whether his techniques or his methods are are worth it. And uh, it's it's quite it's a really really lovely film. It's it's a very impressive young performance from from Redford. So I would say check that out if you haven't seen it. That's one film from 69 I think that was really worth seeing. Um and with what time we have left here, uh I wanted to point us towards Castle Keep. <laughs> yes, well. Uh the Sydney Pollock film. Now Sydney Pollock, of course, legendary filmmaker and actor he also made they shoot horses don't they in 69 so he had a very busy year uh castle keep is a particularly peculiarly 60s era world war ii so 60s so much flute on the soundtrack yeah and and that thing (laughs) that i've known a lot seen a lot in movies like um uh butch cassie's son as kid another 69 movie that uh, vocalizing jazz. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That thing that goes on in a lot of movies. I don't know. The, that was a the, weird trend. The Swingle Singers were the biggest <laughs> proponents of that. Yeah, there was a lot of that. Um, but this is mostly sort of a World War II movie, but it's mostly kind of an art house picture with uh, about a, a group of soldiers, including Burt Lancaster in an eye patch, who. Uh, who Hide out in a in a fortress or a castle in in Belgium, waiting for the Nazis. And for the good chunk of the film, it's not really a war picture. It's just Americans hanging out in Europe, going to like a bordello in town, which seems particularly unlikely. Um, and uh, and it's psychedelic. Uh, and then eventually remembers, oh yeah, this is a war movie. And then the <laughs> tanks come in, and uh, and there's some fighting in the third act. But uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's a really interesting young Bruce Dern, who of course. Is in uh, in the Tarantino movie. Yes. Uh, he's he's in it. Um, great character actor Scott Wilson, Michael Conrad, who I'll always remember from Hill Street Blues. Um, yeah, it's uh, it's 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 something. Oh, Peter Falk. Got to mention Peter Falk. As kind of a jerk. Yeah, <laughs> you know, who's, yeah. Who'd rather be baking than soldiering? But he's he's also 
you know, not, not a good guy, but uh, yeah, I, I was curious to see this because of its stars. I mean, you know, I, I'll watch Burt Lancaster, Peter Falk, Scott Wilson, um, who passed away not too long ago. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a fine character actor. You know, I'll watch these guys in anything, but, but this film, you know, it, everything about it, the soft, the soft focus and, uh, you know, a lot of speechifying about, you know, well, what good is civilization? Is it worth saving if we're just going to destroy it? And, 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 um, you know, a lot of that, a lot of this stuff about, you know, destroying the castle and the artwork it contains and, you know, the, the, the officer who's like an art historian, it turns out, and he's fighting to save civilization and, you know, the soldiers are, are just going to destroy it anyway. So, you know, it, it's, it's a very, um, obvious, uh, kind of parable, I guess. And then, you know, and then it ends with the slam bang battle scene because they needed to have that, I guess. So if you're going to watch one Sidney Pollock film from 1969, you should probably stick with They Shoot Horses, Don't They? As we close this episode of Lends Me Your Ears, I just want to note that we had some sad news this week in the passing of Rutger Hauer, who, uh, interestingly enough, his career began in 1969 uh, with a TV series created by Paul Verhoeven, who would become his first major collaborator, and they made several feature films together over the years, but he passed away at the age of 75. And, uh, of course, this uh, this podcast, this show, is produced here in Halifax, Nova Scotia, and Rucker Hauer made a big impact here just, just about a decade or so ago when he came here to make the film uh, Hobo with a Shotgun, by uh, directed by Jason Eisner and co-written with John Davies, and produced by Rob Cotterell. It was... Uh, it was great to have Rucker just kind of hanging out in Halifax. You know, people saw him riding his bicycle around town and um, got we, to meet We both him. got to interview him. We both got to interview him. He, yeah. We met him at a screening of The Hitcher. They had a, like a, a matinee screening of The Hitcher where he showed up and took questions from the audience and, and uh, met and signed anything <laughs> that, that people uh, brought to, to get autographed. Uh, he couldn't have been a more pro, nicer guy with a, with a really great attitude about his career and where it's been and where it's gone and and uh and his love of being in this particular film and working with jason was really really evident um uh, i feel kind of privileged to have met him and and chatted with him and and the film is terrific uh it's you know it's completely over the top and insane uh and and uh you know not for the faint-hearted but but he uh he really gave it his all in that project and it's kind of funny that the same year he played painter peter bruegel in the mill and the cross which was a critical critical uh, international hit so that you know showing his that you know even in his later career he still had this amazing range and this amazing passion for yeah. just portraying characters of any stripe most people will remember him from blade runner but his films of the 80s are the ones that i really loved uh you know um blood of heroes and the hitcher as you mentioned lady hawk uh, lady hawk yeah there you go so and he did the film version of wanted dead or alive from that tv show oh, from right. the 60s <laughs> that starred steve mcqueen uh right so anyway our nod to rutger hauer uh, who, who made a, a big difference in our cinematic lives uh, you've been listening to lends me your ears the 85th uh, edition of the podcast and uh, we are on social media if you'd like to reach out to us uh, we've got a Facebook page, Twitter, Lends Me Your Ears. Stephen, you have your own Twitter account. That's right, at NS underscore S-C-O-O-K-E. My Twitter account is uh, my blog name, Flaw in the Iris. We also have a Patreon account. If you would like to give us some, some coins to help us do what we do here, we would very much appreciate that. Many, many thanks to CKDU for the studio facilities and for airing this show every second Tuesday at 5.30. And also thanks to our producers at the Village Soundcast Network. 
Network. Thank you so much for listening to Lends Me Your Ears. This was a Village Soundcast Network original production. 